Department of Homeland Security versus Regents of the University of California, the Supreme Court decision impacting immigration without actually changing DACA. Ilya Shapiro of the Cato Institute joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Hello, listeners. Thank you for being here. We have a great episode today. We're we're diving into DHS versus Regents of UC. And of course, that's the DACA case that everyone's been talking about. We have a wonderful expert guest, Ilya Shapiro, to explain the ins and outs of that decision. But before we get into that, I want to thank our sponsor for this show, NBI. That's short for the National Business Institute. Taught by experienced practitioners, NBI provides practical, skill-based CLE sources attorneys have trusted for more than 35 years. Discover what MBI has to offer at mbi-sems.com. That's mbi-meaning the minus sign, sems.com. All right, Ilya, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Good to be on. Well, listeners, just a quick little sidebar before uh, Ilya and I begin our conversation here today. So today's episode is not about the pros and cons of DACA. As polls tell us, although Americans might be divided on the notion of widespread amnesty for illegal immigrants, when it comes to DACA recipients, the majority across party lines support some sort of amnesty or path to citizenship. So Where there comes in much political disagreement is the mechanism for getting there, and that's what we're talking about today. So, Ilya, you're the the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute, and also you're the counsel of record for the amicus brief on behalf of the Cato Institute in this recent Supreme Court decision, DHS versus Regents. So let me open up with this question to kind of help our audience orient themselves to what's going on here. Can you give us the brief history of these two executive orders and then get into the case just a little bit? Happy to do that. And before I do that, I have my own disclaimer in that that brief that you mentioned uh, dovetails with what you were saying about the policy merits or popularity of uh, DACA, of providing some sort of legal relief to people who were brought uh, to this country illegally as children, have kept their noses clean and become uh, productive members of society. We got some uh, attention, some media attention from our brief because on the cover, it's styled as supporting DACA as a matter of policy, but the government, the administration as a matter of law, because as you said, it's all about, this case is, how the rescission of the program was put into effect. And so to answer your question, back in 2012, President Obama issued a memo, well, he directed uh, Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano to issue a memo saying two basic things. First, to uh, deprioritize the removal or deportation uh, of these so-called DREAMers. DREAM is an acronym for legislation that's been proposed and hasn't been fully passed by Congress over the years to remedy this problem. So to deprioritize uh, their removal. And also, and here's where the main legal issue comes in, providing uh, temporary lawful presence status with various attendant federal benefits uh, from work authorization to Medicare and and, and Social Security and, and other types of federal benefits. Now, at the time, nobody challenged DACA. This was a presidential election year. As you noted, uh, DACA is generally uh, popular, and so nobody challenged it. But two years later, when President Obama, now in lame duck after the midterms, put in DAPA, D-A-P-A, for parents of green card holders and, uh, and citizens, that was challenged in court, ultimately enjoined by the Fifth Circuit, and the, and the Supreme Court, after Justice Scalia passed, affirmed that ruling by uh, an evenly divided four-to-four court. Now, fast forward three years after that, 
or two years after that, President Trump is now in the White House. Attorney General Sessions issues a, a legal opinion that, uh, in part for the, the reasons that the Fifth Circuit stated in the DAPA case, elaborating a little bit more, DACA is, uh, is illegal. It goes beyond presidential authority and therefore urges rescission. And on that basis, the acting uh, Secretary of Homeland Security issued a, a memo somewhat re- reversing the memo of Janet Napolitano uh, five years earlier. And immediately once that happened, several states and others went to court to enjoin the the rescission of DACA, and that's where we've been uh, ever since. And the Supreme Court took it up and uh, just last week said that the rescission was done improperly for reasons that we can get into. Okay, so I want to get back to the amicus brief there. And so there's a little bit of a contrast there. So on one side, you support DACA as a matter of policy, but conversely, you support the Department of Homeland Security, the petitioner, as a matter of law. So can you walk us through that contrast just a little bit? Well, sure. I often tell law students to ask their professors to give examples of areas or or legal issues where their legal analysis might diverge from their policy preference. And this is certainly one for me. In in other words, I do think we should normalize the immigration status of of the dreamers uh, as part of a broader immigration reform effort. But the executive can't do it alone. That is, I agree with the Fifth Circuit decision in DAPA that the provision of certain benefits and providing them uh, identification cards and, and, and so forth, that goes beyond what the executive can do under the parameters of prosecutorial discretion. Absolutely, it's fine, and nobody challenges the idea that you would uh, go after uh, violent criminals and human traffickers and what have you ahead of people who are the only law they're violating is being in the country illegally. It's just like uh, prosecutors go after murderers before they go uh, after jaywalkers. But it's that affirmative benefit uh, issue that that's a problem. And so when the administration decides that a previous executive action, because after all, President Obama did not go through uh, notice and comment rulemaking, any other formalities under the Administrative Procedure Act, let alone congressional legislation, when you're rescinding executive action, if the next administration decides that that action is illegal, that should be good enough. Whereas uh, Chief Justice Roberts, in his opinion, effectively put in more obstacles for rescinding than for putting in a program in the first place. And that, this gets to what we argued in our brief, that's dangerous for ever-increasing federal and executive power. You kind of have this ratchet effect where presidents get to do more and more things that become much more difficult to rescind, even if you think that those actions are illegal or unconstitutional. Let's bite off a couple of portions of that that are a little, they're distinct from one another. So in the decision around this case, it was important to make the distinction between simple non-enforcement versus granting temporary status and benefits. So that has some play in the Administration Procedures Act. So you started to get to it, but can you walk us through that a little bit too? Yeah. Chief Justice Roberts, unlike the lower courts that had enjoined President Trump's rescission of DACA did find that there were different parts to the program. It wasn't simply all prosecutorial uh, discretion. And because it's more than simply non-enforcement, as I said, the setting priorities for prosecution or, or removal, because there was this additional grant of temporary status and or lawful presence designation and attendant benefits, 
the Administrative Procedure Act went into effect because, after all, the administration set up certain policies about how to unwind DACA. They didn't just cut it off immediately. Instead, they said there would not be any more renewals. There was an orderly process for winding it down. And that, in turn, because it's policymaking, the chief justice said, had to go through the Administrative Procedure Act, meaning potentially notice and comment, or at least giving significant reasons that courts would evaluate to ensure that it's not arbitrary and capricious. And because the administration did not do that here, Chief Justice Roberts wrote, this was arbitrary and capricious. So in effect, he didn't say that you can't rescind DACA, but he basically sent it back to them for a second bite at the apple. All right. So Ilya, I want to highlight the distinction in the the way that these uh, executive orders were treated differently a little bit more. So back in 2012, uh, the Obama administration enacted DACA and it was self-admitted by the president at the time that he does not have the authority to do this, but wanted to give some relief to these young adults in the country through no fault of their own who are now adults and uh, they've got kids, they've built lives and they have no place to go back to. Wanted to do that while Congress fixes immigration. And ultimately that didn't happen. So fast forward to 2017, the Trump administration's concerned with a variety of externalities uh, in regards to immigration on the citizen front, but also is concerned about DACA recipients. So they viewed the DACA program as a sort of a crutch, and this is how I understand it from my research, as a crutch to actually getting congressional immigration reform done. So they decided to rescind it. So this executive order was found to be not lawful in the, in the form that didn't go through APA. So just walk us through a little bit more deeply the distinction between those executive orders and how they were treated by this court. Well, the, the 2012 order putting in DACA, nobody sued over it. Courts aren't going to reach out and and have issue opinions when there's no case or controversy before them. So there was no lawsuit about DACA until the states uh, and others uh, sued President Trump's administration when he rescinded it. Now, what happened in the interim is a political story that's important that you were alluding to. In 2014, when President Obama put in DAPA, there was an immediate lawsuit and that eventually was enjoined. And then in the early Trump administration in 2017, when uh, Attorney General Sessions found DACA to be uh, illegal or beyond presidential authority and President Trump rescinded it, that is what put pressure on Congress. And you might recall there were negotiations between the administration and both the Democrats and Republicans uh, in the House and the Senate about how how to provide a DREAM Act or other types of immigration reform. And that negotiation process, that legislative process, was short-circuited by the lower courts in joining the rescission of DACA. You know, Congress doesn't want to take responsibility for anything on immigration policy or anything else. They don't want to take controversial votes. You know, both parties are like this. Their incentive is to get reelected. They don't want to be on the record doing something controversial. And so the courts essentially let them off the hook. Once the rescission is enjoined, there's no more incentive really other than, you know, for good policy and the good of the country, but who cares about that in Congress, to find some kind of reform. And so with the Supreme Court ruling, ultimately, again, not allowing the rescission as it was done, putting it back to square one, uh, you know, I can't see the pressure being on Congress for doing this. So effectively, what we have here is the Trump administration is going to go back to the well and try to satisfy the Administrative Procedure Act requirements that uh, Chief Justice Roberts laid out in his opinion. And of course, all of this will ultimately depend on the results of this fall's election. Because if President Trump loses, then presumably President 
President uh, Biden uh, will keep DACA and won't pursue rescission. And if President Trump is reelected, then we'll have uh, a new lawsuit about the new way in which they attempt to uh, rescind it. Returning to our mechanism of law here a little bit, uh, you had a June 18th article uh, where you said today's decision, referring to the Supreme Court decision, today's decision not only goes against the rule of law, it harms the prospects for fixing our broken immigration system. So what, what did you mean by that? Well, what I was just uh, alluding to in my analysis of the dynamic between Congress, the executive, and the courts, this is something I've been saying since President Obama put in DAPA in, in, in 2015, that uh, in general, I think we do need to uh, normalize, fix our broken immigration system that's broken in way more ways than, than we've been discussing here. But by the president taking unilateral action and effectively making new law in this area, that poisons the well for any type of reform or compromise. Uh, and so similarly here, with courts stepping in, it takes the pressure off of Congress to find a legislative fix. And so just as the dreamers kind of were in a... Uh, precarious position all along, they, they remain that way because this pushes off into the future, kicks the can down the road of, of a lasting long-term legislative fix. At this point, based on Chief Justice Roberts' opinion, if the Trump administration gets its act together and puts its uh, legalistic ducks in a row, crosses its T's, dots its I's, then there's not going to be a problem in rescinding DACA. But uh, you know, the, the, the ultimate goal should be to reform the immigration system lawfully, not just have these, these patchwork executive fixes of, of dubious legality. All right. Well, just a last question as we close it out. And so your your colleague, Josh Blackman, had uh, something to say about this. Uh, he didn't think it was very likely. But uh, getting back to that whole ducks in a row and then trying this again through, I guess, more compliance with the APA. Do you think the Trump administration will be successful uh, before the end of his first term rescinding DACA in the in the way that uh, Justice Roberts laid out? There, no, there's, there's just not enough time to get to the Supreme Court. So what I think they are going to try to do is within the month to put out a new memo, to have new findings, to separate the non-enforceable parts, uh, the non-enforceability policy from the, the benefits and, and status uh, determinations and, and, and things like that. Why within a month? Because it takes about a month for the Supreme Court mandate to issue, and then this is all remanded to the lower courts uh, that have to dissolve their stays of the, you know, anyway, lots of technical things. And if they start the process, the clock over within a month, then there's going to be instantly new lawsuits filed, and away we go. We could see a district court opinion before the election, but, but certainly it's not going to get to the Supreme Court. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Ilya, and thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate us in your favorite podcasting app. Also, we'll cite and make available our sources for this episode, which are plenty, on our website, LegalTalkNetwork.com. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, NBI, the National Business Institute, for making this program possible. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. 